Welcome, and I'm really looking forward to speaking with you today, Donna. And please pick a number between one and twenty-six. Oh wow! Um, how about twenty-six? It's my husband's. Ooh, birthday. okay. I think you're the first person who's asked for number twenty-six. It was. Would you like to live more in your body or live more in your head? Well, that that's an easy answer. I would say it's not binary for me. It's both. I think one without the other is missing something. So I would say, you know, we got to figure out how to do some real serious integration of that. And especially those of us who've been, you know, live in the academic world. I think it's uh, absolutely crucial because the temptation is to stay in your head all the time. And that just doesn't work for me. (laughs) Never has for the 30 years I've been in academia. So uh, to flip it a little bit, Do you find yourself spending more time in your head or more time in your body in general? Or do you feel like you've got any sort of imbalance? Are you pretty happy with your your balance right now? Well, at this point in my life, um, I feel pretty well integrated, to tell you the truth. Um, That's great. I've worked worked at it. You know, I worked at it when especially in the uh, early years of, of academia, I've always been a an exercise fanatic and, you know, been always a runner and everything. So I'm, I'm pretty, pretty well connected at both levels, I would say. Oh, that's great to hear. Because for me, that was a real struggle um, in university it was kind of coming to terms with, you know, maintaining not only your discipline and your study and everything, but also staying healthy and eating right and, and exercising, because you can really, um, there's a total interplay between the two. And if you let your, your body start to decline, you're going to start to face mental health issues and, and a whole slew of stuff. That's not very fun. So I'm glad that you've got it all figured out. I, I'm very happy to say that I too have kind of just kind of come to terms with that only recently. And I've started to become more balanced between being in my head a lot and being in my body a lot. Um, and well, congratulations. That's, thank you. That's, that's a great accomplishment for me at your age, especially at your age. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's funny. Sleep, sleep is always the killer um, for me getting enough sleep. Um, But exercise has been a a big thing that I've been working on integrating too. Um, So what do you do? What do you do now for exercise? Are you, you said, you mentioned you're a runner. Are you still running out there? And Um, not so much running anymore, but I, I, I'm a member of a health club. I have been for years and years and I do a lot of, weight training and I do uh I do Zumba I don't know if Ooh. you're familiar with Zumba love I've Zumba heard. is that the biking one or is that the dance one no that's the Latin dance one the Latin dance one okay yeah yep. yeah uh and uh I also just do cardio uh classes a lot of you know working uh, working out the heart so oh that's great I I I really wanted to, I had gotten into resistance training and weight training just the past year and I was really enjoying it. But um, as you know, I've now moved to a cabin in the middle of the woods of Wisconsin in the middle of nowhere. So finding a place to do any sort of, of weight training is, is slightly difficult, but cardio is a big part of my schedule now too. Great. Um, without further ado, uh, why don't you pick a, another question uh, between one and 20 this time and this will kick off our leadership discussion. Okay, four. Four. Which personal experiences have you had with ethical leadership that were positive and negative? Well, um, the, I'll start with a negative because it led to the positive. I think, you know, I've told you that I have done a lot of work um, in the corporate world 
where my dignity model, which is uh, some work that I've done in my career as an international conflict resolution specialist. I wrote a book about dignity and lo and behold, it, it really attracted people in the cor- corporate world. So, and what I found was that my first foray into the corporate world to do, to do work was because we're having some terrible conflicts between management and employees in the workplace. And they thought that maybe the, they tried everything and maybe the dignity work would focus uh, more appropriately on what was happening between the two sides, the two parties. And, and so I was hired to, to address this conflict uh, between these two groups and this big corporation. And it worked out well, really helped resolve the conflict. But what I realized was there was a dimension to this conflict that had to do with the leadership of the company. Mm-hmm. In other words, mm-hmm. it had to do with a lot of the policies that the leadership was proposing and you know, implementing that trickled down into all of these work groups. Um, and I realized these were policies that were dignity violating policies. These were, in, 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 a, in a very basic way, they were unethical policies because they were discriminating against certain groups. They were treating people unfairly if they belonged to a certain group, whether it was women or minorities or, you know, and they were also, you know, very bad at giving recognition to people. Um, All of these things to me is, you know, fall under the category of dignified leadership. I know ethics, in my mind, we talked about this a little bit before. That's it's a very very similar approach to um, leadership as dignity leadership. So it's just you know we come into it from a different angle, and I think um, my biggest mistake was avoiding that huge leadership component of it first. Because what I what I realized was had I gone to the leadership executive team right away at the start. I would have helped them see how some of their policies were actually trickling down into this big conflict between the management, you know, the supervisors and the employees. So that was the that was the mistake. But (laughs) the positive thing was that because I worked for so long for that group and still wasn't able to get to the leadership team, I decided to write about it. So I I wrote my second book, which is Leading with Dignity, How to Create a Culture that Brings Out the Best in People. And that second book was all about how important it is that the leadership buy into this this notion of treating people as if they matter at the workplace. Right. And, you know, it was one of the best things I'd ever done because it wasn't I don't even see it so much as a failure or a mistake. I see it as what I learned in that situation that told me I had to do something new. So it was a learning opportunity as much as it was a failure. So um, I I just reframed it. I reframed that mistake or that failure as a learning opportunity. It led to my second book. And it really, it really um, was a, was a, was a great uh, motivator for me. One thing I'd love to know about the situation is when you were approaching senior leadership on the topic did you find that their um approach to their leadership models or to their specific policies that they were implementing was it just 
kind of rooted in ignorance of the situation or and how did you find it trying to explain that to them and, and were they receptive to it and if they weren't receptive how, how did you approach that no that's that's exactly what it was um you know because we're we were talking about good people you yeah. know i the ignorance factor was pervasive and it wasn't just in this in this company it was every single other company that I've worked in, worked with since. So the ignorance about dignity and how to treat people and what happens to people when they aren't treated well, they aren't treated as if they're something of value and worth, that has catastrophic consequences on the culture of the organization. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember interviewing one guy, one employee, and I was talking about these dignity violations. He said, oh, dignity violations? It's my job to suck them up. So really, and it's like, oh, yeah, that's nothing new. This is just this. That's the whole culture is, you know, a dignity violating culture. So and in terms of the leadership team and the ignorance surrounding it, well, you know, like every other leadership team that I've dealt with, they feel a little embarrassed. They feel embarrassed when I you know, present this dignity work to them because I even, I even show them neuroscience data that explains what happens to people in their brains, what happens to them when they've been violated. I mean, the short story is that the brain doesn't know the difference between a physical injury and an injury to your dignity. I mean, so when I tell these leadership teams this, that look, we have to pay attention to this This isn't just me, Donna, you know, telling my stories about dignity and asking you to be nice. It's not. It's way deeper than that. This is a human phenomenon that people do not like to be treated badly. And when they do, they suffer and they feel pain. They feel actual pain. So so I think what I had to do more than anything else um, was take the shame out of it for them. Right. It's interesting to me as well. Like, it seems like that would be obvious. <laughs> you know, people don't like not being treated well. But is it part of it in the company culture where it's, you know, oh, this isn't a real issue because it's not? Is it the numbers kind of when you show them the numbers and you're like, okay, productivity or, or whatever that might be? Did you find that was the solution? Well, that's part of it. That was part of it. But, you know, the bigger phenomenon, which was, I think, pervasive in in their ignorance was this notion that you really had to be a kind of command and control leadership mm-hmm. leader, right. that that whole traditional way of, you know, taking the power and the authority and just doing what you know, you've got to do for the company. Right. Uh, that was a huge one. But the other, the other thing was just helping them see that, um, like you said, <laughs> you know, what happens to people and also presenting the research and the research Um, I've done lots of work with people in the business ethics community, a lot of professors who have done the research showing that when people are treated with dignity in the workplace, productivity increases, employee engagement increases, willingness to give discretionary energy increases, loyalty increases, retention. And that's a huge one now, retention. And last but not least, profits increase. So this is not a, I think you were alluding to a kind of touchy feely approach to leadership. Yeah, that's what they would think in the beginning. But then once I would present all of this, you know, I'm an academic, so I have to have research to back up my claims here. 
And when I would show them all of that, they were, I think, you know, Augustine, I think they were humbled by that. Right. They were humbled. And they, I think they were also grateful that I was presenting it to them in a way that really tried to focus on helping not only them as they're in their own personal leadership development, but also trying to help them see how their culture, how their, their system-wide culture could actually improve the uh, bottom line of the, of the company. So yeah. putting those two things together, their own personal development, but also how the company itself could benefit tremendously from this kind of what I call dignity education. I would be interested to know, and you, I hope you have a little bit of information for me on is, you know, where does that command and conquer model, because that's something I've noticed has been very pervasive in most of the places where I've worked and eventually left, (laughs) is this pretty omnipresent command and conquer model. And it's hard to find people who, who lean more into that ethical leadership style or dignified leadership in your case, sorry. <laughs> no one has to I want to give credit to your name. Um, why do you think that's taken such a strong hold, especially at larger companies? Well, I think it was just the modus operandi for so many years. It, was, it wasn't questioned. You know, in business schools, I don't think that this kind of ethical approach or dignified approach, uh, it wasn't until very recently that professors of business ethics, like my colleagues, Michael Pearson is one person. You might want to try to interview him, actually. Michael Pearson's great. He's I think I'm written, actually reading his textbook right now. Did he, oh, yeah, did he write a textbook great. on business leadership? He did. <laughs> I think I'm reading his book right now for one of my classes. Yeah. Now, he and I have been working together for over a decade, and he and several other people uh, all over the world have created this new business paradigm where they've put human dignity at the center of the paradigm. And it's called the humanistic management network. And they have challenged, they have challenged all of these old traditional assumptions about how to lead people like the command and control, you know, approach. They've challenged it and not only challenged it just in debate, but they've challenged it through their research. I was just, you know, I was just quoting some of Michael's research about what happens, you know, to the productivity increases, engagement increases, all of that. So they've done this really tight team of business ethicists have done this remarkable work on how to transform the workplace using human dignity. I mean, I started out with them because right. one of the things that that they appreciated about my work was that I operationalized what dignity looks like. And so they they were able to put it all together um, and measure it and do the, you know, do the research, do the do the quantitative research that no, is always so convincing. I've got to say, you guys have done a phenomenal job because part of the reason I, I, I'm interested in this and, and it seems so shocking to me and, and like a different world is because I, I am right now in essentially a, a leadership program and, and a lot of my study is focused on management and finance classes and, and what have you. Um, and a lot of what we're taught right now in those classes is more modeled on that dignified leadership. And it's fascinating to hear that, you know, just for me, I did I haven't seen the prior style of teaching. So it's interesting to to know that there was almost like a totally different frame of mind oh, yeah. prior to this. And that this is almost like you said, it's a new paradigm 
that's on the rise and, and it's, it's, it's clearly taking over. Um, if, if that's what they're teaching me at my school, hopefully it is. What do you think? I, I know, cause you were very influential in, in kind of like the first round of introducing dignified leadership. What do you think it is that is pushing academics like yourself um, into this new direction of leadership? What sparked that initial kind of shift away from the old model? Well, for me, I'm not just an academic. I, I consider myself a scholar practitioner because the work that I've done excavating this dignity idea was the context of that work was working with parties in conflict, people who were killing each other. You know, I worked yeah. in the Middle East. I've worked in Asia, in Sri Lanka, in Africa, in South America, in Northern Ireland, all these conflicts where it was so difficult to, to resolve them, I realized there was this human dimension. So my, my, I'm a little bit different. I think I'm a little bit unique in the sense that my background is in you know, international con conflict yeah. resolution, not business management or uh, leadership at all. Right. But I, I, I just followed my instincts around how important this was to human beings, no matter what the context. So, it, you know, now I'm doing work in the corporate world, in healthcare, in education, in organizations of all kinds, because this human dimension, this idea that people want to be treated as if they mattered is a universal human phenomenon. And it, and it goes across cultures. All my research that I did, I was so surprised that I thought there was going to be a stronger cultural influence. But the fact is, we, we found something that is human species specific, not right. human culture specific. So I think because of my, my you know, put, having one foot in a real practical world and the other in academia, I think that's why it was so um, clear to me. Because if I hadn't seen it up close, you know, and witnessed yeah. it myself, I don't think I would have understood it as as deeply as, you know, just taking an academic approach to it. No, absolutely. What what for you was kind of the thing that jumped that gap? Because you, you started in conflict resolution, and then it seems like you shifted from dignity in conflict resolution to dignity in leadership. What When, when did that happen? And, and what was kind of the driving force behind that shift? So when it happened was when my first book came out in 2011, mm. 2011, Dignity, Its Essential Role in Resolving Conflict was published by Yale University Press. And I thought, I thought that it was going to appeal to my international conflict community, right. you know, the people who work and do the same work that I do. I thought, gee, I might have discovered a missing link in my understanding of, of this, of why these conflicts are so difficult to, to resolve. So I wrote that book for my community. Now, that said, what I was surprised and certainly shocked, I would say, about was how it touched a nerve in, as I said, the corporate world, healthcare, right. education, faith communities, big time faith communities um, and and organizations of all kinds. And so I, you know, it got started that way. It was out of my hands. It was yeah. about Publish, publishing that first book, yeah, uh, which led, as I told you, to the second book about leadership, because that the, the link, the gap there was so obvious, and it didn't matter whether it was international conflicts or conflicts in the workplace. If the leadership wasn't 
the leadership on both sides, if they weren't conscious and actually just humbled by this dignity yeah. information, if they weren't aware of it and if they didn't practice it, then you're going to see toxic work cultures. You know, it's just the way it is. Yeah, that, that's something that maybe I jumped ahead a little bit too, because I'm not super familiar with with your um, dignity model. And I'm sure there's listeners too who are not. And I was wondering if you maybe would be willing to kind of summarize your approach to, to dignity sure. and leadership. Well, yes. And the we really have touched on a lot of the major themes. Uh, you've already asked whether you know it or not. You've already <laughs> covered many of them. But as I said, you know, I went into the corporate world uh, because I was invited to help resolve a conflict between the, the two uh, ma- management and employees. And when when I realized that so many of the conflicts were dignity based, I decided I had to do a big educational campaign. Right. I had to work with the, the, the people in the organization, with everyone, not just the leadership team or the people who were having conflicts, but the whole company needed to be aware of the role that these dignity violations were playing in creating this horrible dynamic, you know, among and between people right. at, in the company. So, so that the, the basics of the dignity model is simply understanding, number one, what dignity is. It's right. our inborn value and worth and our inborn vulnerability to having that dignity assaulted. So just knowing that simple definition, yes, we're all born worthy no matter what. We may differ in status. You know, you got your hierarchy there, that old, you know, traditional hierarchy, but we are equal in dignity no matter the CEO, whether you're a CEO or whether you're, you know, the person who cleans the floors at night, everybody should be treated the same way. So that's the first, one of the first building blocks. Then I did what's called the 10 elements of dignity. I did some research to come up with what it actually looks like because I knew dignity played a role, but I I knew also that people needed to have a concrete sense of what it really is. So I did my research, came up with these 10 elements of dignity. I'll just briefly go through them. The first is identity. Everybody wants their identity recognized, no matter their race, their religion, their ethnicity, um, their sexual orientation uh, or physical capabilities. People wanna be treated as if they matter, no matter what kind of, you know, background they have recognition. People want re- recognition for doing a job well to, yeah. they want their bosses to say, Hey, nice job, Augustine, you did a really good job, you know, and people want acknowledgement. And this is a huge one. People want acknowledgement for the suffering they've endured. So let's say you're in your, your job and your boss really embarrasses you in front of your whole team. Yeah. Um, somebody's got to go up to you and say, I mean, it'd be great if it were the boss, but it rarely is that. But if somebody, yeah. at least somebody went to you and say, oh my gosh, that should have never happened. I'm so sorry. You know, yeah. nobody should be treated that way. So acknowledgement's a big one. Safety is a big one. I have one quick question. So yeah. for me, recognition and acknowledgement seem very similar. What are the differences between those two for you? Well, recognition is like for a job well done. Nice job. Right. You know, acknowledgement is acknowledgement of what you've experienced that is painful. And okay. I mean, it's important to ask that question because a lot of people do. There, are, there is a difference. But the way I framed <laughs> it 
is that it's acknowledgement of the suffering that you've endured. Right. Uh, dignity violations. And again, safety is probably one of, is the biggest. When I interview people, they always tell me that safety is the biggest one. I say, safety, are you kidding me? What about fairness? And what about your identity? What about right. discrimination? And they say, no. And the reason they say no is they say, because they don't feel safe to speak up when something yeah. bad happens to them at work. You know, yeah. they don't want to talk to their, their boss, you know, embarrasses them or violates their dignity in some way. They don't want to Absolutely. go up to their boss and say, hey, that was unacceptable. So that is a, is a very, very big uh, part of the work that I do with people because I help people figure out how to give feedback skillfully when they don't feel safe to speak up. And on the other side of it, I train the bosses in how to receive that feedback in a way that, you know, doesn't, doesn't return the harm. Right. So anyway, so I've got acknowledgement, uh, identity, acceptance of identity, recognition, safety, fairness, uh, give, being given the benefit of the doubt. People want to be, don't want to be considered, you know, untrustworthy. Yeah. Um, understanding people want to be understood rather than have somebody rush to judgment about who they are. They want, they want to be given an opportunity to talk about their, their perspective. Um, and the last one is accountability. So let's say, you know, I violate your dignity. You want me to come to you and apologize for that. You know, that that's part of what humans want. Yeah. They want the person who does the perpetrator to say, Hey, look, I'm sorry. You know, yeah, a simple, absolutely. I'm sorry. <laughs> but I'm sorry is uh, some of the hardest. Those two words are the hardest to speak when, when you actually are the perpetrator. So, yeah. So one thing that's interesting to me is when you go in, how do you identify these dignity violations? Because because you've got a beautiful list and, and it, it's wonderful. But a lot of the time, people might not feel, like you said, safety. If safety is being violated, how do you come in and get people to open up about potential violations of dignity so that you can be the mediator between upper management and them? Well, first of all, I ask them to tell me stories. Right. I don't I don't I don't show them the list and say, OK, which one of these? are you? <laughs> which one? To the checklist. <laughs> yeah, let's do this. No, my approach always. Well, first of all, I work with them quite a bit before I start delving into these painful places. Yeah. So so that trust develops between me and, and them. And so once I feel I mean, you know, you just got to sense this as a practitioner when the right time right. is. But you ask people, like, okay, tell me a story. You must have had your, I mean, I, and I tell my stories. I say, right. look, here's what happened to me that I was devastated about. So I make myself vulnerable too. Right, right, absolutely. And, and once, once that door opens, you, the floodgates open. I mean, it is amazing when you genuinely and sincerely want to know uh, what happened to people. You know, this yeah. is part of the acknowledgement, right? Is asking right. people, what happened to you? Tell me. And when you do that, um, people are so ready to talk about it. And so then once I've collected these stories, I go back to them and I say, okay, let, let's just put a name to all of this. Let's put a name to it. I take that list of 10 elements of dignity and I say to them, you felt bad. Number one, you were discriminated against. Number two, you were treated unfairly. Number three, you weren't acknowledged for the suffering you've endured. Number four, you were um, you, you felt like you were being judged. So right. then after they tell their stories and I match up 
the dignity violations that were active in that story, right. there's buy-in immediately, immediately buy-in. Yeah. And it gives them a way to talk about it. And I think, you know, Augustine, the most important thing here that I've done is given people a vocabulary, giving yeah. them a way to talk about these really painful experiences that they've endured. It doesn't matter, it could be in the workplace, but other places as well. When people are given a vocabulary, I mean, it's obvious <laughs> you're able to start expressing yourself. But did you find even by the introduction of the vocabulary, people started be more proactive with fighting against undignified action in the workplace? Well, I think what happened with that first introduction to the to the language of dignity, the vocabulary, is that it validated their experiences. Right. I always say, look, there's nothing wrong with you. Something wrong happened to you. Something bad happened to you. You're feeling bad. There's no question about it. And it's totally appropriate that you'd feel bad. But be sure you know it doesn't mean that you are bad. It means something bad happened to you. Right. So externalizing that and giving a name. There's research. On my, one of my colleagues at Columbia University has done some research about how powerful it is to name an assault. Because yeah. once you name it, you put it outside of you. You take it outside of your inner world. Right. That is suffering so profoundly. And it, you externalize it and say, oh, no wonder I feel so bad. I was treated unfairly or I right. was, you know, I'll take any of those elements. So, no, yeah, I definitely can relate to that. It's easy, you know, when you feel slighted or when, when you feel like someone's taken, not, not taken, but ha has been a, an aggressor on you. It's easy to be like, OK, where did where did I make a mistake? Like, what exactly. what did I slip up on? Um, maybe I didn't do this as well as I could have, or, or looking for, ex not excuses, but looking for ways to place the blame yes. on yourself. And, and, and it's definitely, it's really unhealthy. And, and I think part of that too is when you get to a high level in a lot of these workplaces and when you're at a high level in academia too, as you've experienced, there's a, there's a strong trend for like perfectionism. And even individually as myself, I know I'm a perfectionist and it's not, it's not the healthiest thing because you, you find ways to blame yourself for things that are completely out of your control. And, and it's reassuring to hear you say that, you know, the system, it, it helps people externalize a lot of this guilt yeah. they might be feeling and recognize that, you know, it's not my fault. <laughs> At the end of the day, it, it's some shitty thing that happened to me because I had a bad boss or because there's this unfair policy in place. Um, Absolutely. No, I want to just pause on that point because yeah. you said it, you said it beautifully. You said it beautifully because if we're prone to self-doubt anyway, you know, yeah. if, if, if we hadn't learned this, now this takes us into dignity education at a very right. young age. One of the things that I'm doing now is working with a lot of elementary school teachers to get them to develop curricula for their students to, to show them that they have dignity no matter what. And because yeah. the self-doubt, the self-doubt and the self-questioning, and like you said, the self, the impulse to self-blame, it's right. in there in our inner worlds. It's, it's kind of like our own internal language. And right. once we can attack that at a very young age with kids, can you imagine how powerful that would be if they learned that, hey, wait a minute, if you're feeling bad, maybe something bad happened to you. 
Just right. imagine what a revolution that would be in our own inner health, in our own inner worlds. Now you're and really, so, so, go ahead. Sorry. I, well, I was just saying, now you're really making me question a, a lot of the systems that we have place in academia starting from a really young age. We, we have such a system that's rooted in, you know, getting judged, essentially. <laughs> At the end of the day, you're judged from basically the moment you enter school until the moment you leave university. And oftentimes it doesn't even stop after that um, in the oh. workplace with all these feedback cycles and everything. And yeah, how about performance reviews? Well, yeah, there you go. Performance reviews or whatever. And do you think that that, I mean, obviously that is a contributor to that psyche, but how do you see us breaking down that kind of system in a sense? Well, yeah, I think you got to start early. This is yeah. what I'm what I'm suggesting that and and teaching not only the kids but the the teachers as well. So when I go into a school, I've done lots of interventions in in schools, and the first thing is I work with the teachers and the administrators. Right. But the second the second thing, and then they they develop the curricula for their age appropriate curricula for their classes. I mean, right. I've got a wonderful teacher in Texas who's working with seventh seventh graders and they are so proud to be dignity leaders because they think that this is so great but the fundamental groundbreaking piece of information for them is to know that your true dignity comes from within that you're born with it that nobody can take it away from you because you know school what you were so rightly pointed to what education has done in the past um, and probably continues um, is they they think that your dignity they implicitly suggest that your dignity comes from your good grades right oh the only way i can feel good is if i get an a on that project or if my teacher you know, says, good job, good job, or whatever, that they, they forget that their dignity is, is there. I make a distinction between that true dignity and what I call false dignity. Right. The, the false dignity is thinking that it comes from somewhere outside of you. Oh, God, you're taking me back to like freshman year of university I, when like I got my first like A minus and I literally cried like, yeah. after the exam. And like in retrospect, yeah. it's so silly. No, but it's, it's, no, you're not, you're not alone. I can tell you all of my students, I, you know, I teach this dignity model um, once a semester, it's a weekend class, but what, what all my students feel the same way you do. They say, oh my God, I've gone all these years thinking that I can only feel good about myself if I, you know, get the good grade or it's like this notion that your dignity is in your hands and your hands only. I learned that from Archbishop Desmond Tutu. He's the one who told me that. Um, because, you know, he said, well, I worked with him in Northern Ireland on the conflict in Northern Ireland. Yeah. And he's, and we were talking about dignity. And I said, boy, so many people think that they have their dignity stripped from them. Yeah. And he said, don't perpetuate that myth, whatever you do. Yeah. He said, how do you, he said, your dignity is inside you and nobody can take it away. It yeah. can be assaulted. It can be injured. I mean, that's yeah. for sure. He said, but look, how do you think we in South Africa got through apartheid? We were, we black South Africans were treated as, you know, like animals. 
And he said, the only way we got through it is knowing that our dignity was in our hands and no, no, no white South African could take that away from us. So, you know, there, there's some inner, there's some emotional sophistication in that, you know, we are, by learning this stuff, we are increasing our emotional capacity. We are creating like an infrastructure in our inner worlds that says, all right, somebody can treat me badly and I'm going to feel bad about that, but nobody has the power to take my dignity away. Yeah. That's what these teachers are teaching these little ones from seven years old. It's so great to hear that because for me, that was such a, you know, it it took a long time for me to develop that confidence to be like, yeah, you know, it doesn't matter if I get a bad grade. It doesn't matter if I'm bullied or something like that. Yeah. It's not, it, there's nothing wrong with me. It does I'm matter. I'm confident it does, in myself. Yeah, it does matter because people shouldn't yeah. be treating each other that way. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so on that level, it does matter. But what it means is that you've been injured. That's what it means. Like if you yes. fell down and broke your arm, you would say, oh my God, I, I'm this this is really painful. This hurts yeah. like hell, you know? But we wouldn't, we don't ever say that about these dignity violations, even though the brain interprets them in the same way. Absolutely. So another important point I want to underscore, I said it earlier, is that, you know, this whole idea of making a mistake or failing or whatever the perfectionist voice is in there, you know, the, the important thing is to understand that it might be an opportunity for learning, you know, instead of calling it a mistake or a failure, right. you know, Tom, Thomas Edison said this <laughs> because I love this. I, and I'm going to just paraphrase his, his no, what he please. said, he said, you might want to look it up to get the exact words, but he said, someone said to him, God, you've, you had many failures before you figured out how to, you know, how to make a light bulb. And he said, Oh, I never thought of them as failures. I always thought of them as what I need to do to get to where I need to go. Right. You know, it wasn't a failure. It just showed me what didn't work. He said, it only showed me what it didn't work. Then I went on and and figured something else out. So, but just think of the mental strength it takes to not look at something as a failure, you know? Yeah. No. Um, Like, especially in academia, when this whole perfection notion is the, 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 the message, the implicit norm yeah. in our, uh, in our universities. It, it really is. Um, and anyway, so don't get me started on you. No, no, please go, go, go for it. <laughs> this, I think, I, I'm yeah. loving it because, you know, as a former think, college student myself of only three or four months ago, I'm very happy to hear someone ridicule the system um, that made me feel very bad initially before I kind of took the moment to, to reflect. Um, and I think you're you're totally right that it's it's a growth mindset that you know being able to reshape these injuries that you sustain um, yeah. into opportunities for growth and for personal development is it's a beautiful tool and it's not easy. I guess another aspect I'd be kind of interested to know a little bit more about is you know it's one thing to to take these dignity violations and, and treat them as injuries, like you said, and take them as opportunities for growth. It's another thing to move towards changing the systems inherently. 
And a lot of the times for people who are in situations where they don't have the power to, to change a given situation, especially on their own or, or even in conjunction with people around them, how do you a- approach that? Because you're in a unique perspective where you're coming in as kind of an outsider enacting change, but how do you see that inability to enact change when you're within that system affects organizations? Well, first of all, I did recently a dignity leadership training uh, with at Texas A&M University, right. where they contacted me and said, we, we loved your book, Leading with Dignity. We really want to um, make sure that all of our people in leadership positions have uh, an awareness and understanding of it. So I did these trainings with right. deans, with the, all the upper level administrators, with the chairs of departments. It was fantastic. And they were... They, they had influence. You know, these were all people in positions of power and authority. Right. And they decided because of this systemic aspect of this, yeah. they realized that it had to be approached at that high leadership level. And I'm so proud of the work that they did. I'm telling yeah. you, um, it, it was just amazing because they recognized that, you know, every system has these indignities in it. And that they just wanted to make sure they wanted to make sure that they were equipped to hand because these bigger issues like, say, racism, systemic racism and and all of the is this is bigger than the university. This is part of of our global culture. So they realized, you know, we maybe have some really good programs inside the organization, but we want to be sure that these external influences, these big isms like you know, racism, sexism, all of the isms. Yeah. We want to be sure that we know that our policies are handling these in a way that fights that indignity. Yeah. So we do have to attack it at the systemic level of the organization, right. as well as do the interpersonal work. Um, in other words, if you're you're a dean of a school, you have to be sure that the way you interact with your faculty, with the students, you have to be sure that that, that's that personal development part that you were talking about. So you have to do both at the same time, I think. But if you're caught in that, which is really what your question was, if you're a student, say, caught in that, I think the most important thing to do, and my students have told me this, actually, they came up with this idea of having a dignity buddy having somebody that you know, your friend, you know, somebody close to you that you can turn to, to say, oh my gosh, I just took a hit. You know, I just had my dignity. You don't want to keep it inside. Oh yeah. You don't want to keep it inside. So just, just at that very granular level, when it's you, you know, not the system, but you suffering this is to make sure, because the healing process requires you to, talk about it. You remember I said, I, first thing I do is ask people to tell stories in order to yeah. get them to tie into the, the 10 elements, to giving people your full attention and listening to them in a way that acknowledges the suffering that they've endured. It's a very powerful uh, healing antidote to the, to the toxicity that people have experienced, but you can't keep it inside. You have to find your dignity buddies, everybody. I've got an interesting question for you then. How do you, how have you kind of seen a shift and how would you recommend people approach this um, kind of in the midst of our current global pandemic? Because definitely one of the things that I 
first felt very strongly uh, with the onset of going online was the the absence of your dignity, buddy, that you can't, even if you're having these online communications, it's just not the same as being there in person and, and being able to get like a hug or something like that. Do you have any recommendations for people on how they can try and find outlets for that? Well, you're so right. We all, I think we've all suffered that. We, we've all sacrificed our, some of our closest relationships, whether it's our family or our old friends from childhood, or we can't see and, and just acknowledging, acknowledging that this, this is horrible, what we're going through. This is because, you know, human beings crave connections. There's all kinds of data and uh, research about how much that we are wired for connection, we humans. And when we don't have that connection, it is painful. But honestly, I was in the early stages of my work because everything had to go virtual. You know, I do lots of in-person work. I have in the past, I should say, (laughs) pre-COVID. And, but I'm, I, I have to say that the next best thing has been getting on one of these platforms, whether it's Zoom or WebEx or whatever it is, and getting on the platforms. Is it is it 100 percent satisfying? No, let's just call it what it is. Is it better than nothing? Way better than nothing. And I've even (laughs) I've even taught. Well, you can imagine because you're doing this now, but I've taught. I've taught classes um, and I continue to teach classes virtually. So uh, it is the next best thing for sure. But also just forging those relationships with people you are, who are in your bubble, you know, who you feel safe with. You can explore a deeper kind of relationship with them too. I mean, maybe it's your parents, maybe it's your, you know, community members that you hadn't, I don't know, but you see what I'm saying. Just don't no. give an opportunity to connect um, no matter whether it's virtually or, or in person. No, I totally, you might notice I'm milking you a little bit <laughs> trying to get an answer here because it's something I'm going through right now, actually, is that yeah. I've started this online program where I'm doing my, my master's program in China online and I've completely slipped my sleep schedule. And now I'm in this odd boat where, you know, I'm on a totally different sleep schedule from all of my friends. And, you know, I'm attending classes online and things have gotten intensely virtual and, and it's, it's been feeling disconnected recently. Yeah. And so it's great to hear that. And, and I'm definitely going to take your advice and try and more aggressively pursue those online connections. Um, and it's funny that, you know, I've my whole life, I've been a huge gamer. I've played games my whole life. And uh, traditionally, my communities have been largely online because of, yeah. of games. And it's You're interesting that. that I thought that would prepare me well for the pandemic. And I think in many ways it did, but there's definitely been almost like a realization, I think from that of how important it is to have those offline connections as well. Yes. And and how there's something that can't be satisfied just being online. Fortunately, I'm here with my parents and they're still around to give me hugs and stuff. So I'm going to go and get right after I hop off this call, I'm going to go and give my mom and dad a big old (laughs) hug. Well, um, That's about the time that I think we have for today. Thank you so much for coming on, Donna. And I really appreciate you taking the time out of your, I'm sure, really busy schedule to to come on and speak with me about dignity and and leadership. And I feel like I've learned a lot. Thank you so much for sharing your system. Normally at this time, I like to close out with giving you a little bit of space to plug whatever you're working on right now. 
if you want to talk about a book that you're you're going to publish as you're a big book publisher i know <laughs> so if you have any projects you're working on that you'd like to share with the audience uh, please feel free right now i'm not working on anything anything new i think what i'm trying to promote right at at at, at this juncture is just scaling up the dignity awareness uh, right. I, I really I mean, like you and I have discussed here in such a deep way, I appreciate the level of intimacy that we've created here with this, this podcast. The thing is, people are suffering, you know, people are suffering from these indignities and it's all over the world. Thank God for, for Zoom because people in, you know, all parts of the world and helping them see that, wow, the reason you're suffering is because your dignity has been violated. Yeah. So I've been actually really happy having that, that reach, that extra reach that in the past, if I had in-person events, it would be me and, you know, a hundred people. Right. But I, I'm trying to scale up. Um, I'm trying to scale up the, the, um, the information and just get it out there to people to say, and that's why I love doing podcasts because it's, it's one way of reaching yeah. an audience that I normally wouldn't get to reach. So I just think that this is a source of human suffering, these dignity violations. It's a source of human suffering we can do something about. Right. It's a lot of human suffering we can't do anything about. We can't do anything about cancer and COVID and all of that. I mean, yeah, we can get vaccinated, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah, Some things yeah. are out of our control, um, but we can do something about how we treat each other and how we understand that the best way to bring out the, the goodness in people is to treat them as if they are good, to treat them with dignity. So that's my job right now is trying to reach as many people as possible, encouraging them to read my books. The first one, Dignity, It's a Central Role in Resolving Conflict. By the way, it's been translated into Chinese. So Yes, I believe, yeah. if I remember correctly, you were going to send send me, you had a copy lying around. Oh, you know what? I didn't get your, um, please send me your um, home address. I think I'll that was that. the reason why. Yeah. So just, uh, it's been translated into like, I think a dozen languages now. And the second one, leading with dignity, which is really more focused on what your topic is. It's uh, leading with dignity. It's a central role in resolving conflict. I mean, leading with dignity, the role of, no, wait a minute. How to create a culture, <laughs> sorry. How to create a culture that brings out the best in people. No, leading it's still early. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I had a late night last night. But anyway, I, I just think I'm, I'm, I'm trying to spread the word as it were. No, and I think that's a wonderful message to go out on. Have a wonderful day, Donna. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to the Inspiring Brave Leaders podcast by Magnolia Tree. This is Daliana Eliesh the editor of the podcast. Feel free to reach us or visit our website for more bursts of inspiration around leadership. You can find a link for our website and our social media platforms in our bio. Thank you for tuning in. Mm -hmm.